This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You've been hearing in the news this morning that things have shifted slightly in the war between Ukraine and Russia, with Russia's priorities focusing more on the Donbass region. Well, what does that mean? To find out more about this, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what is the emphasis still from the United States government and the Biden administration? Are they still talking about what's going on there? Uh, of course they are. Uh, and, and there is a broad understanding here that uh, that the focus for Russia was originally and still continues to be the Donbass area, which is the region of eastern Ukraine that President uh, uh, Vladimir Putin had recognized in the hours leading up to what he then called a special military operation. And going after this area in Russia's eyes is uh, to protect what it believes is Russian interests in the region. Uh, and the United States is keenly aware of what is going on there. That is why in the last uh, several days, uh, the U.S. Congress has allocated roughly $40 billion to continue uh, the U.S. effort to assisting the Ukrainian military. How much influence has that had in Ukraine? I mean, it seems like one of those stories like Russia, U.S. intelligence has played a role. Has U.S. technology played a role? Yeah, look, U.S. technology plays a role uh, big time, surely with the uh, uh, rather uh, largely with the number of howitzers that are being sent over there, even though Russia is saying that and it's unconfirmed at this point that they targeted a number of U.S. howitzers uh, that were being delivered uh, into Ukraine. But the U.S., uh, the ability for the U.S. to send uh, equipment over there, the the activity that U.S. intelligence has been able to pinpoint and then pass along information to Ukrainian forces uh, has allowed them to stay one step ahead for the better part uh, of this effort. Uh, but it's also augmented by intelligence from around the world. That includes UK intelligence, which has been working in tandem with that for the West across North America. And that really has allowed for Ukraine, while it has suffered losses and significant losses, especially down through parts uh, of Mariupol, it has allowed it to not suffer losses, say, as bad as Russia, where what we're hearing is the number of dead soldiers in Russia, uh, uh, rather Russian soldiers, is equivalent over the last month and a bit to what Russia suffered during its entire war in Afghanistan. Wow. Okay. What about negotiations? Where do things stand on that front? I mean, it's at a standstill at this point. Uh, last week, early last week, uh, and, and within the last couple of weeks, we heard from Ukrainian officials, including from the Ukrainian president, uh, to say that negotiations were simply going to be, uh, you know, paused or, or temporarily suspended. And that is because, uh, Russia is putting demands on the table that, that essentially include, uh, exclusively almost ceding territory like the Donbass area, like the annexed areas of Crimea and potentially whatever Russia gets its hands on so that it becomes a part of Russian territory, not uh, a part of a sovereign Ukraine. And, and, and Kiev has simply said, look, that is not going to be something that we're going to do. And we are going to stop having these conversations. There hasn't been a uh, kind of a, a full court meeting between Russia and, and Ukraine uh, since the you know the end of March or the beginning of April when they met uh, in Turkey. So it's been a long time and it very well could be a long time. 
Okay. And we've seen sort of more and more U.S. politicians and leaders head to Ukraine to visit too, haven't we? We have. We have seen uh, uh, U.S. Uh, top diplomats, including uh, the Secretary of State. We've seen a Democratic delegation that was led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in the last couple of weeks. We saw a Republican delegation head over, headed by uh, Senator Mitch McConnell. What we're likely not going to see is the president. And this is kind of a sticking point for some lawmakers in the U.S. We've seen the prime minister over there. We've seen U.K.'s prime minister. We've seen presidents and prime ministers from across Europe, but not Joe Biden. Uh, and the White House has repeatedly said it's likely not something that's going to be on the menu coming up, even though we've heard from Biden himself say that he would like to go over there. You know, arguably, there's a lot of uh, security detail that goes around uh, the president and Ukraine has been kind of noted over the last several weeks for kind of blowing the lid on what are oftentimes supposed to be a top secret mission over there. So it puts a potential target on the back uh, of, of a sitting leader. But the White House is saying, look, the president is not going to go over there. We continue to support from across the pond. But ultimately, there are members of both parties that want to see the president's feet on the ground. So interesting. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. You know who I'm guessing is a really big rat fan? Our Reggie Sohal. What do you say, Reggie? <laughs> Come, Come on, on, Simi. You grew up in Surrey, Reggie. How can you not be a rat fan? Simi Sarah, because I because round I was round. listening to like I was listening to folk music that people like sixty years older than me were listening to, and I what? was listening to Madonna. <laughs> you know what? I sometimes I am reminded of the age difference between us. You're right. Rat when is probably more music, yeah. a my generation thing, right? Growing up in Cloverdale, lots of yeah. uh, great bands and like Rat, Simi. Twisted Sister, Poison. Whoa, Poison. AC, DC. No. Yes. You're really, okay. At this point, it's, I think it's safe to say you and I have very different (laughs) musical preferences. (laughs) And if it involves headbanging, it's more your thing than mine. Oh, definitely mine. Definitely mine. I never got into the long hair music. Oh, well, you know, I think it could be a generational thing too, right? You grew up in the 90s. I grew up in the 80s. Very different eras of music for sure. But sorry, I digress because you had a question for us this morning. I do. I wonder among our listeners if there's anyone out there who's ever found a diamond in the rough. Maybe literally like you were in a thrift store and you found a total gem that the store mustn't have been aware of. So they mispriced it because there's a story online right now of this woman who went into a Winnipeg thrift store and she found, I mean, the pictures of it to me online look like, okay, it's it's all right. Uh, she found a bag, a handbag. Turns out it was a designer handbag and it was priced for $5.49. But she knew it was a designer handbag and uh, it's worth thousands of dollars. Uh, bought brand new online from the maker of that uh, designer handbag and you would spend over $2,000. But she spent uh, about $5. Okay, wait though. Wait, I have so many questions. How did this get donated to Value Village? And I don't blame like, I don't blame anybody in the thrift store. Like, of course, they're not going to know because they probably thought it was a knockoff. I would have thought it was a knockoff. But I guess I'm curious as to who would donate. Maybe the person who owned it didn't even know what they had. 
Maybe. I mean, I comb thrift stores pretty regularly and like all over Metro Vancouver. I'll go to, to Langley. I'll go to Mission. I'll go to North Vancouver, obviously. I go all over for these things. I will go to church sales. I love thrifting. And what I have to say is that I think you would never find this deal, uh, this like, I guess, mistake. You would never find that in Metro Vancouver. In fact, if you go on, um, you know what Yelp is, right? Yes, I know yes, what Yelp. I'm not that old. I know okay, what Yelp is. You mentioned the difference in our age. So, okay. So if you go on Yelp or you go to any of the like Vancouver thrifting forums online, you will see consistently complaints about how everything in Metro Vancouver thrift stores is overpriced, even really? fake designer bags. So if you find a fake designer bag, not a real one, and the store knows it's fake, it will still run you close to $100. We're talking about just like a little tiny fake purse. Hmm. Um, so you'll find even fake designer shoes. But when I do find the real stuff, uh, it's very expensive. I found a pair of boots at a thrift store two weekends ago, just like a pair of leather boots. They were real. They were in decent quality, a very good designer name, uh, but they were $800. Um. Okay. How much were they brand new and retail? You know, maybe twice as much. Hmm. But for me, if they're in a thrift store, they need to be thrift price. They just have to be. And now there's like this line when I go into thrift stores of like, hmm, is this even worth it? Is this even a thrift store anymore? Maybe it is just that the people like the thrift stores here are much savvier about what is coming along. They're obviously very good at their jobs. They are. I don't think that they would like run into this kind of an error where they would put a designer handbag that's worth thousands of dollars on the shelves and sell it for a few dollars. I don't think that would happen here at all. In fact, now at a bunch of thrift stores, you'll get like a glass case of items that the workers found that they think is of better, higher quality and it's locked up. So you got to ask to see it. And sometimes I'll find stuff in there that yes, it's it's properly unique and special or rare, but other times I'll find something in there and I think, huh, that's kind of run of the mill and it has a big price tag. And that's just because they know it'll be something that's coveted. So like I collect charm bracelets, like vintage ones. Uh, I love uh, these charm bracelets from the sixties that people used to get little charms made from different places they'd visit in the world. And it happening. Wait a minute, I have on one back. of those. I have two of those. You do? Well, because my, I'm just listen, I feel really old in this moment, but yes, my mom bought me one of these when I was a, a, like a little girl and occasionally over the years she would, and this is the 1970s, right? Into the early 1980s, she would add a charm to it. Oh, I love that. I love that. So I never had one of those myself. So I've been collecting other people's that I get from uh, thrift stores. How many do you have? And, uh, sorry? How many do you have? Oh, gosh, lots. Maybe maybe two dozen. What? Yeah. And they're from all over the world. And they're mostly from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe the popularity of these actually peaked in the 80s. Yeah, I would say so, because then we stopped adding. We I used to have specially made charms, like I have birthday yeah. charms and birthstone charms. And like, I think I actually have a congr- like graduating from kindergarten charm on there too that my mom oh, got that me. Is so, that but is so you're cute. right. I think they probably peaked in the 80s. I'm just fascinated that you collect this because... <laughs> When you learn about what another person collects, I think it's just so fascinating. So you collect charms. I used to collect um, vintage teacups. 
you know? Oh. The nice, the cup and saucer type. I collected them for only a couple of years, though, because I ended up accumulating like 30. And then I thought, eh, this is enough. I didn't know what to do if I collected more of them. So how many bracelets are you going to collect? Oh, I would keep collecting. The thing is that although I have over two dozen, everyone is so different, so unique. And like you've just shared this really cute story of the one that your your mom would have gotten charms for throughout your childhood. And like the ones that I have, they have various years engraved on the back of them. So I just imagine the lives behind all of them and the the memories that these would have held for other people. I find you probably find that weird that I collect those, but I find it just like this... <laughs> This like I'm wearing people's stories on my wrist. I love it. This is so interesting to me because I've often wondered, you know, when you donate such personal items, it's and there's going to be more of this, Raji. So you're, I think you're coming up to something here because I was reading a story in the New York Times on the weekend about how in the United States, like thrift stores and everywhere, they are preparing for the great junk migration. That with the retirement or perhaps passing away of, of you know, the baby boomer generation, what is the next generation going to do with all their stuff? And yeah. that's what's going to happen. People like you are going to collect it. <laughs> well, you won't find me collecting large things. I wouldn't do the the teacup and saucer because that's too heavy and breakable for me. I find with jewelry, it's very small. It's very compact. Everyone says to me like, oh, when are you going to resell this uh, online? And I say, no way. I'm hanging on to it. My kids have already staked claim and everything that I have that I like that someone else's. So it's staying in the family. I am so fa- I would love to hear what other people collect because I feel like your collection is quite unique. I've never heard of another person collecting those. Do you know of anybody else who does that? I don't. And I don't want anyone to start collecting them because I got <laughs> dibs on all the uh, thrift stores across Metro Vancouver. So I, I should really say you don't yeah. want to collect. You don't want, you to, don't want to do that. No. It takes up too much space in your jewelry box. It's just too much. Right. Uh, but you know what, Raji? That is fascinating. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. One year ago today, I think, our conversations really changed when it came to talking about our history in this country and the legacy of residential schools. And that's because of what happened in Kamloops. To talk more about the significance of this day one year ago, joining us now is Global News reporter Kamal Karmali. Good morning, Kamal. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, very somber and uh, significant uh, day here in Kamloops for the Kamloops de Shwetmik, um as the ceremonies to mark the discovery of uh, suspected unmarked graves one year ago today is already underway. Yeah, tell me a bit about that. What's going to be going on today? Well, it's a full-day uh, memorial. It started at 5 a.m. with a private sunrise ceremony at what's called the Powwow Arbor. It's this circular uh, sort of a, a mini arena with a grass center and lots of places to sit. Uh, that's where all the events will be taking place. There'll be drumming, uh, dancing, uh, words of reconciliation and reflection. Lots of speakers lined up, including um, uh, Governor General uh, Mary Simon. Uh, and uh, also we know that Justin Trudeau is set to speak later today at around 7 p.m., uh, tonight, but uh, once again, it started off very early with a private 5 a.m. sunrise ceremony. We saw plenty of um, the band members here in uh, their traditional regalia uh, within the arbor itself. Media were not allowed, the public's not allowed. This is just uh, for them to reflect and uh, really uh, mark uh, what is a very, very somber anniversary. Uh, the actual public event 
which I mentioned will be a lot of drumming and traditional singing and dancing and with a lot of speakers begins at 9 a.m. goes right through to, to the night here. Okay, and what have you been hearing from some of the people in the community there, Kamal? How important and significant has the last year been for them? Absolutely. I mean, as you mentioned off the top, it's really changed the conversation for a lot of people uh, as a country. Uh, you know, this has really shone a spotlight on uh, Canada's uh, very checkered uh, past and uh, has led to some action as well, as I'm sure you very well remember the apology by the Pope not too long ago, the delegation of Indigenous leaders that went to the Vatican. I mean, it's all uh, what they consider um, a step in the right direction in the year that's uh, uh, happened since the discovery of these suspected unmarked graves. And it also prompted, as I'm sure you know, uh, a lot of discoveries of other possible unmarked graves uh, throughout the province, throughout the country as well, most recently in Williams Lake as well, where Trudeau also uh, visited. But it also resulted in some uh, monetary action as well with funds going towards um, this ground-penetrating radar to look for more um, of these uh, suspected uh, unmarked graveyards. And as I'm speaking to you, you know, I, I'm just a short walk away from where the residential, former residential school is and where these unmarked graves were found. But I'm standing in a grassy field that is completely taped off because there, this ground that I'm standing on is also going to be used uh, at, at, with that ground-penetrating radar to see if there's more unmarked graves here. So a lot of work that still needs to be done as uh, the Tikkamluk de Shwetmik are uh, marking this, uh, once again, a very somber anniversary of the discovery of these 215 suspected unmarked graves. Yeah, such a significant day. Kamal, thank you for telling us all about it. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, in the last few years, we have had all sorts of scandals in youth sports. There was Canada Youth Soccer. We've heard about problems in junior hockey. Now it's Canadian gymnastics. So what is going on? Well, more than a thousand athletes from gymnastics, boxing, bobsled, skeleton have all called for independent investigations into their sports in recent months. To talk more about this now, we're joined by Lori Ewing, who is a sports writer for the Canadian Press and has been writing extensively about this. Lori, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. You've been diving into this. Maybe you can help us understand what is going on in youth sports right now. Um, I think the biggest thing is that athletes are speaking out. Like, I don't think this is a new thing. I think it's probably been going on for decades. Like, I was a track and field athlete. Um, actually, I raced at for Simon Fraser University and. Um, and, you know, we saw that decades ago and I think just now people are like athletes are just, um, decided they've had enough and, you know, there's strength in numbers and the more people are coming out, the more comfortable other people are coming out to tell their stories. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That Sorry. seems to be the big thing, doesn't it? It's that, you know, one person tells their story and then the next sport tells their story. And there seems to be, ever since I feel like the, the big gymnastic story happened in the United States, this yeah. is, we're, we're seeing more and more of this now. Yeah, exactly. And then some of the gymnasts, um, and I, I applaud them so much for the bravery because I know it must be oh, so yeah. hard to, to go through that. Like, and they've had to also tell their stories in front, in front of, um, you know, uh, I'm not, not jurors, if they're doing an investigation into the sport because a couple of the coaches have been suspended for life. Um, just having to rehash the story so many times. And um, they told me, like, they've had to keep silent for so long that they just really want to tell their stories. 
Yeah, that is so true there. So I guess the key here is, Lori, are they now being listened to? What's being done about it? Yeah, that's a tough thing. Um, well, there was the one gymnast in Vancouver, Amelia Klein, who launched the class action lawsuit a couple of weeks ago. And I think she, it seems like there's not really um, a lot of optimism amongst the athletes that, you know, things are going to change through the sports system. So I think if you look at Amelia, and um, I think she has 20 class members in that uh, lawsuit so far, um, that they're seeking ways to go outside, like through the legal system and not the sports system. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's a huge, huge can of worms, and I feel for the sport minister right now. And I, um, you probably read that they hired a, a new um, sport integrity officer. Yes. Yeah. So she starts. I think she starts taking cases on um, June twentieth. But just at the same time, you look at that similar office in the states, uh, USA Safe Sport, and they they have a three year backlog of cases that they're dealing with right now. Boy, that sounds like a lot. So what about the individual sports organizations? How are, are they at that level? How are these these situations being dealt with? Are they developing codes of conduct or how are they working to protect young athletes? Um, well, that's the thing. It really it really differs from sport to sport. And I know like 20 years ago that all of the national sport organizations had to sign a code of ethics and um obviously haven't been living by it. And they were supposed to, um, and that, that was like um, a factor of them getting their national funding. So what the new sport minister is doing, Pascal Sanong, is she's making them sign again that they have to agree to the this new sport um, integrity commissioner. And so they have to do away, like the problem was they had, um, they, uh, like if you had a, in a, a complaint you had to go through your national sport organization and often you're complaining to the person like the president of the nso that and sorry i lost my train of thought you know you just, it's not right. a safe place for you to go to and so now um the new sport minister is making all of the nso's like sign on to the new sport commission they, they can't have the cases go through their own organization anymore that makes sense but that makes sense to do it that way right like the sports minister yeah. has called this a, a crisis for safe sport now you were talking about some of the things that the athletes are looking for and i thought in, in your story that you wrote and i thought this was so interesting what were some of their suggestions like things like scales should be banned from children's gyms i know i know it's so sad I, i'm and a lot of the gymnasts have talked to me about like lasting body image issues that they're still suffering in, like in their twenties and thirties. And, um, one athlete, she said that she was put on a really strict diet at the age of 13 and weighed twice a day for like her entire career. Um, and if you're overweight just slightly, then you, you know, the coach says humiliating comments and they post the weight up on the wall in the coach's room. Um, and then they have to run in garbage bags, like at 13 years old, to try to get that weight off. Like That's it's, crazy. It's really sad. I know. And the thing is, the parents don't know that it's happening because the parents aren't allowed in the gym. So, yeah. That's in gymnastics alone. So parents aren't allowed to come into the gym, and this is the kind of stuff that's been going on. Like, no wonder kids didn't want to speak out, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's the thing, too. Like, sorry, coaches are, like, telling the kids, don't go home and tell your parents. And then if they did tell their parents, then they suffered more. Like harsher consequences at training. 
And then they wonder why more and more kids aren't taking up gymnastics in this country, right? Like they've been, that's been the case, I think, increasingly in recent years. So what is going to change here then, Lori, in the near future? Like, will there be codes of conduct? Will these organizations be forced to do this? I, I think they have to. Like, I, I just, I, I don't think they can. That's the thing that sport has um, sort of operated above the law for so long. And I, I think that the more athletes speak out, the, you know, the more we're shining the spotlight on what's going on. And I, I, like, I really hope that they're not going to be able to get away with this stuff. Yeah, one would only hope. Listen, Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's Lori Ewing, sports writer for the Canadian Press. You should read her latest stories that she's doing about this. What, a, what our sports minister federally has called a crisis in youth sports, and that is making sure they are safe for kids. Like just the gymnastics side of things. Some of the things that uh, Lori was writing about, she spoke to uh, somebody who used to be kind of on the board of Gymnastics Canada. Some of the, the suggestions for parents out there, if your child is going to gymnastics, and essentially do Google searches on the prospective coaches. Um, And she's saying that, you know what, there's often chatter about uh, a coach. Like if there are some questionable behavior involved, you can sometimes track that down on Reddit or just find some, you know, discussion about that happening. But too often, like parents are kind of left on their own to figure all of this out. Can you imagine that kind of stuff? Like making 13 year olds run in garbage bags to get the weight off and weighing them twice a day. And it just outrageous types of behavior uh, that is going on out there. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Oh, that song so appropriate this morning because, of course, that was the theme song for Rick Hansen's Man in Motion tour. Today being the 35th anniversary of the day that he ended that 40,000 kilometer wheelchair tour around the world, came back home to a huge celebration. And I'm sure you're, you have memories of where you were on that day. I know I do. If you want to share them, send me at cknw.com. Now, let's talk about heat, shall we? One of the problems last summer with that incredibly intense heat dome that we had was the fact that cooling systems in buildings and houses are not as common here on the West Coast as they are in other parts of the country. I think it's safe to say that for many years, air conditioning was thought of as a real luxury here. But in the city of Vancouver, that may soon be changing because of a recent bylaw that was passed. For more on that, we're joined now by Roberto Pecora, who's a director at the Zero Emissions Building Exchange. Roberto, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. So what is this bylaw all about? What does it mean for us? Well, the, the bylaw, so it's not a bylaw yet. There's a series of proposals that have gone to council. and They've been approved by council at the city of Vancouver. So there is, there is proposals that affect big buildings and small buildings. Uh, the majority of what's been approved by council recently are for big buildings. And uh, one of them, as you mentioned, is cooling. Uh, and there, the, this cooling, this mandatory cooling requirement 
will come into effect uh, in 2025. So it's not an immediate, uh, it won't be an immediate change to the uh, building bylaws, but it's something that will stipulate that buildings, multifamily buildings will require cooling uh, as of January 1st, 2025. But the fact is that the vast majority of multifamily buildings that are being built today already have cooling. So this is not some incredible push towards right. some outer boundary. It's happening now. I've noticed that too, because even if you shop for a condo or keep track of condo buildings, if you had looked at one, you know, five, six, seven years ago, it was 50-50 if it had a cooling yeah. system. But today, mm-hmm. everyone I look at, it comes with a cooling system. Well, there's a market demand for it, right? And I think the developers are very attentive to market demand and obviously they'll do whatever they can monetize, I think, to some degree. So they they know that uh, if there's a demand for cooling, they'll find a way to put it into their developments, their new developments. So it's all, like I said, it's already being done. Uh, There's another component to one of the, um, one of the, one of the other proposals that was put forward to council related to homes, um, smaller buildings. And that one's kind of interesting. Basically it's saying that if you live in a home and you're thinking of buying an air conditioning unit, you, you no longer can buy just an air conditioning cool it, uh, unit. You have to buy a heat pump that's got you know heating and cooling. So it provides you with the cooling that air conditioning would, but it also provides you with heating. Um, that's an interesting, uh, that's, to me, is a pretty interesting change that uh, they're proposing right. for violence. Yeah, okay, so as you said, they're proposing this one. So what does that mean? Does that mean like those portable air conditioners that we, like, people have been snapping up in recent years that we, in the future we may not be able to buy just that in Vancouver? No, they'll still be allowed. They'll still be allowed. It's, it's more if you're looking to actually put a permanent air conditioning system in your home. And it's, it, it's sort of different, right? So if you, if you want to buy a portable air conditioner, you still can do that. There's no, there's no, you know, you're still allowed to do that, obviously. And this, by the way, this change that I'm describing is it'll be happening as of January 1st, I think, of next year. Okay. But air, portable AC is still allowed. It's more if you're going to I- incorporate cooling into, say, a furnace or something else like that, so you don't have a furnace, so you have electric baseboard heating and you just want AC, they're going to say, well, sure, but you're going to put a heat pump in instead. Roberto, what kind of a difference can this make for people to have the ability to have a, a cooling system in their building? I think, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, you know, these heat waves are becoming more intense and more frequent as we kind of live in the age of consequence of climate change. And so... They're going to, the cooling is going to become more and more a necessity rather than a luxury, like you mentioned earlier. So I think it's, it's, it has to do with, you know, there were over 500 deaths, I think, in June of last year as, well, as a result of the heat wave. So you can imagine what kind of difference it would have made had those people had cooling. So how are we balancing that then? Like, I know there's this whole push towards heat pumps, but what kind of a difference did those make in terms of energy consumption? So heat pumps are more... Uh, heat pumps have very high efficiencies and, you know, compared to an electric baseboard heater, which has an efficiency of one, uh, uh, a heat pump might have an efficiency that's double or triple that depending on the difference between the outdoor temperature and indoor temperature. So they're very efficient, you know, but heat pumps obviously provide heating and cooling. So they're much more versatile than just a furnace or just an electric baseboard heater or just an air conditioning unit on the outside of your building. Interesting. Okay, what is the Zero Emissions Building Exchange? This is a center. So we are a support mechanism, I guess. We were set up in 2018 by the city of Vancouver. So in 2016, 
all these regulations that are coming into play right now, uh, they're, they're kind of consistent. Well, they're quite consistent with the plan that was established by the city of Vancouver in 2016. It was called the Zero Emissions Building Plan. And it basically said, we're going to decarbonize buildings, you know, 2025, 2030. And it laid out a plan. So it gave the industry a lot of clarity on where things are going. And part of that in 2016, part of that plan said, we're going we're gonna to decarbonize buildings and we're going to help you do it. And one of the support structures that was included in that 2016 plan was the Zero Emissions Building Exchange. And uh, we were launched in 2018. And we're, we're basically a hub, an industry hub that, you know, assists the industry in decarbonizing uh, the built environment. That's what, you know, we're, our focus is exclusively on emissions. I mean, obviously, we carry a lot of other co-benefits along the ride, uh, like you know, energy efficiency and resiliency and equity and so forth. But really, our mission is to drive down, to help the building industry drive down uh, right. its impact on climate change. That's so interesting. So you talk, talked about how developers are very kind of sensitive to what demand is, too, from the public. So is there a desire on the part of the industry as well to, yes, we want to take part in all of these zero emissions uh, things that we can because that that is good for the consumer. It's good for them to sell their product too. Well, the uh, there's a lot of well-meaning developers out there, but they listen to their to a lot of the buyers. And frankly, not all buyers are interested in or aware of, frankly, the climate impact of their decisions when it comes to housing. And so, uh, you know, what we're trying to convey to the building industry, and in particular to developers, is that you can actually build a zero emissions building, at least in some areas in BC, and this is based on a study we did last year in June 2021, you can find it on our website, you can actually build a zero emissions building, all electric, for at, at a minimum the same price as a code minimum building, and the two buildings that we highlighted in that study did it for 30% less and the code minimum buildings that were being built around them at the same time. So to me, that's a no-brainer. You know, if you, yeah. if you're a developer, you know, and you can build the same thing that has that does not leave a legacy behind that you're contributing to climate change, or the people in the building are, why not do that, right? But I don't think a lot of developers are aware of the means and ways in which it can be done. Okay, so why is that though? Like, is that a word? Is that just the like the words not getting out? Are they not doing enough research? Is what is the disconnect there? Well, I think it's a combination of things. It's, it's hard to get the word out. Uh, I encourage people to look at that study on our website, zebex.org. Um, you know, these are two buildings that were built, one in Pemberton, one in Kelowna. And uh, they, they are real role models uh, for other developers. But I think, you know, I think there's a, just a tendency to stick with the status quo. And, you know, a formula that works for a lot of developers will be adhered to for a very long time and change Change is a, is a tough thing to, to manage and, and to implement at times. So once they know, though, and once they are aware that you can actually do this economically, uh, they, they, they come around. Interesting. All right. Well, once again, what is that website, Roberto, if people would like to find out more? Uh, zebex.org. So zebx.org. All right. We'll check it out. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Simi. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. It is a very somber milestone that is being marked in Kamloops today. You know, one year ago today, I think the conversation really changed with how we talk about Canada's history, our legacy of residential schools and the impact that has had. And all of that is definitely going to be discussed today. And for more on that, we're joined now by our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. 
Hi, Simi. Yeah, I think you are right about that, that things changed a lot in, in terms of how we talk about residential schools and our history in Canada. And in this last year, I think we've done a lot of uh, reckoning. It's been a year of reckoning in our province uh, and in the whole country. And today is going to be difficult for a lot of people. I think Indigenous people are still mourning. And I think non-Indigenous people and Indigenous people like are wondering on this first year anniversary, have we done enough? since we've learned about this tragedy. And people are talking about the traumatic impact of residential schools more openly, I feel, than we were over a year ago. I think people are trying more uh, to be empathetic and to understand how the legacy has lasted to today and what the impact is. Uh, but the expressions of sorrow have been wide with, uh, of course, we saw the, the Pope apologize. We see our government talking about reconciliation more. And I think Although horrific, the findings of those unmarked graves tell a part of the story that we needed to know. We needed to know the truth. And Global News reporter Richard Zussman spoke to Murray Rankin, the Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation, about how far we've come since learning about those 215 missing children. I think we've learned a great deal. And I also think that the population has reacted in, I think, with an overwhelming sense of grief and and a sense that we need to do better. That's the message I hear from so many constituents, people who stop me, how can I help, those sorts of comments. What was found at the Kamloops School and at so many other residential schools across Canada are are things uh, uh, that Indigenous people have known for years. We've heard from the survivors and their families for years. But now I think the, the graphic uh, results are, are for all to see. And I think Canadians are, are reacting. They're asking for action. They want reconciliation to be much more than words. And I do believe that we're on a, a path that will lead to a better place, thanks to that reckoning, this national reckoning that's occurred. So Minister Murray Rankin also talked about the action that the government has taken in response to the discovery of unmarked graves. We have stood with the Indigenous nations, the nations that are closest to the residential schools, and we have provided funding, but we've taken our lead from them. Everyone has taken a different path. Some have uh, torn down the school. We were in lower post when that school was torn down. Uh, Then there are others that have uh, a plan to do exploration and to turn it into a cultural centre. And others uh, are reacting in a variety of ways. We are standing with the nations. We are taking our lead from them and we're providing funding to help them do the work. The federal government has stepped up as well and I'm pleased to acknowledge that. But we've also tried to deal with the cultural impacts, the emotional grieving that this has led to. And uh, a lot of people are finding this triggering. They are finding finding it traumatic. And it is re, it's, re, it's re-triggering things in a new generation because I think the key point is that this isn't history. This is a reality. This trauma continues to affect Indigenous peoples in our province to this day. That is so interesting, Raji, to hear that because I, I do believe very strongly that you know, we've changed the conversation in the last year. And that was the concern I remember a year ago when this story came out is, will this last? Will will this just be forgotten and people will move on? Or will we continue to have this conversation? 
absolutely. I remember having the same thought thinking, okay, is this just going to be news today and, and done with tomorrow? And we've really stuck with the conversation in our country, in our province. People are having ongoing discussions about our relations with Indigenous people. You know, I've done so many interviews in the last year uh, with members of the Indigenous communities about this topic. And one conversation sticks out to me. I spoke with uh, Brenda Baptiste last June. She's a, a member of the Asoyuz Indian Band, and she's a recipient of the Order of BC. And she told me that when the news of the unmarked graves broke, she was not surprised. She wasn't surprised by the facts, but she said her community knew her mom had been a survivor herself of the residential school system and had told her stories, but the stories were always private knowledge and they weren't out in public. And that aspect of this, the public aspect of this has been traumatic and triggering for many people that it's just out there now. So I hope that the ceremonies in Kamloops today, the the drumming and acknowledgements, I hope they bring healing for many people in the Indigenous community. I know Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be there at 6 p.m. and, and things are supposed to wrap by 7.30. I hope that today, although a somber event, provides healing for Indigenous communities. I hope so too, because I've been doing a lot of reading about this in the last couple of days, just to see how how people are talking about it. And it was really it was sad to hear as well that there were people who found in the you know to Kamloops uh, community that they felt that it had become so public that there was a bit of a downside for some people to that, in that they couldn't grieve about the situation in private because it was such a, a a public thing, right? We just don't know how people are going to absorb this. Absolutely. Uh, public and then also so sudden. That yeah, true. when it hit a year ago, it hit like a sack of bricks and it was really hard. It was hard for everyone to deal with. It was hard being, uh, it, to be quite honest to me, I found it really hard to deal with talking about it uh, on air in the news because it was just su- such a traumatic discovery. So for people who come from those communities where their family members, their neighbors are, are uh, residential school survivors, uh, have been impacted, have stories of people in their family that have gone missing. I mean, I think this is just something that we're, we are always going to deal with and always going to be healing from. I think that's very, very true. Raji, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi. It's our Raji Sohal there talking about the anniversary today. It was one year ago that we started this whole conversation, uh, really, I think, opening up that legacy of residential schools and that system here in Canada to talk about the painful aspects of that, the enduring trauma of that. I should mention here as well that it is expected that some survivors of the Kamloops Residential School are expected to travel to Edmonton coming up in July. And the reason, of course, is that Pope Francis will be making that reconciliation pilgrimage to Canada. So he's stopping in Edmonton, Iqaluit, and Quebec City. And remember, there were people who were very disappointed that the Pope did not include a trip to Kamloops on that itinerary, because this is a year ago where the discussion kind of broke open once again. And there has been such widespread national and international impact as a result of that starting a year ago today. Uh, So yeah, there was disappointment that the Pope will not be coming, but it's good to hear that some members of the uh, Kamloops Residential School, some former uh, students there, will be traveling to see the Pope in Edmonton. So there are events happening today that you'll be hearing about in the news. Uh, It started actually already this morning. There was a private sunrise ceremony that was held 
And there is going to be some songs. There's drumming, dance. A feast is going to follow that. The community is hosting Governor General Mary Simon and the Federal Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller this morning. Uh, there's also you know, plenty of municipal and provincial politicians there as well. So yes, a day to talk more about this, and you will be seeing and hearing complete coverage right here on 980 CKNW and on Global News, of course. And to read more about all, everything that has happened, check out globalnews.ca for more on that. This is Mornings with Simi. It was a decision many people had been waiting a few years for, and finally it was made official. The Canadian government announcing it is banning some Chinese telecom companies, Huawei and ZTE, from having their infrastructure within our 5G network. So you think, okay, that means that there won't be any spying that happens here in Canada, right? Uh, not so fast, actually. We thought, let's talk to an expert about this. Joining us now is Christopher Parsons, a senior researcher at the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab. Christopher, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Do you think that we still, Christopher, underestimate the amount of information that is collected about us? Um, I I think that when we're talking about foreign intelligence services, the answer is yes. Um, there are countries around the world that have very prolific and active foreign intelligence services, and the Chinese are just one of many. And they will continue to collect information regardless of whether or not Huawei products and ZTE products are banned in this country. Okay. So in what ways, though? How is that happening? So the, the purpose of banning Huawei and ZTE equipment is twofold. First, uh, there were concerns about the security of their products, so that there had never been any evidence that uh, a vulnerability had been inserted by government compulsion. And the other concern was a broader geostrategic concern that if we use Huawei equipment, then there's the possibility that, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, the Chinese can use that in a trade negotiation. However, vulnerabilities exist in all sources. So, you know, if you have a a Cisco device, which is made by an American company or a Nokia or uh, any other major telecommunications company uh, uh, vendors equipment, there are vulnerabilities in that. And so foreign intelligence adversaries, including from China, are very, very proficient at identifying vulnerabilities, exploiting vulnerabilities, and subsequently gaining access to systems and servers to either take effects or alternately to collect information. So what kind of information is valuable to them? (laughs) Uh, That is the perennial question. Um, There's a great deal of information. So to give you an example... That could be anything from flight information, who's traveling where, when are they traveling, whom are they traveling with. It could include information about agriculture stocks. It could include information about long-term weather forecasts to understand uh, uh, the way that weather and and food will be produced. It could include military secrets or financial secrets. Um, It could also include information about the way that universities or other research bodies are generating intellectual property. And the list sort of goes on and on and on and on and on. So if there is something that is, has any geostrategic interest, then foreign intelligence adversaries uh, outside of Canada are interested in obtaining it. And of course, our services are interested, interested in defending it. Right. So are we talking about specific people and sectors that could be targeted here for this in the way they collect information? Or is like, collective data more desirable? So quite often what you will see is you'll see deliberate efforts to target individuals. Um, These are usually referred to as human intelligence efforts. And so here um, foreign adversaries may be trying to uh, generate um, agents that they'll run. And so these could be anyone from 
corporate executives to people in city councils. We're sitting in a city such as Vancouver to politicians, to business leaders, and so forth. And there's also, of course, what's called signals intelligence uh, collection, which is where you're moving into digital systems and trying to extract information. And again, you, you see both these human efforts and these digital efforts work in coordination. Um, and the goal is usually an adversary will want to learn, say, about how, uh, let's say, a, a plane um, might generate thrust to overcome some challenges in, in a domestic industry, obtain those using either human or digital means in order to advance uh, a national priority for that government. Tell you, Christopher, when I hear you describe this, I think, how can we stand a chance with our cell phones of keeping anything to ourselves? <laughs> I mean, when we're talking about our phones, yes, it is a challenge. Um, I think that this is an area where Canada is currently looking at likely updating its commercial privacy legislation. So that may have some impact. We're also seeing efforts by actually companies such as Apple to try and restrict the amount of information that flows off your phone by default. And we know that that information, so let's say you download an app, you install it, and it has a geolocation property. Not only is the application using it legitimately and, and to help you and whatever it's trying to do, but that might also be purloined by someone else at the same time. And so Apple and other organizations are trying to ensure that individuals can use their phones securely while at the same time mitigating bad actors from, you know, sort of cherry-picking some of the data that you're also uh, using in your phone. It's so interesting that you say that because I have been noticing recently that Apple's latest ad campaign focuses mainly on privacy and security. It's it's definitely something at the consumer level that Apple and, and Google as well, of course, and Microsoft are all very attuned to. Um, of course, the way that all the companies put things into practice always leaves a little bit to be desired. Um, but ultimately, that's looking at sort of the, the endpoint devices, the devices that you and I use. The government of Canada in banning Huawei and ZTE products is mostly trying to think of how at the network level, so at the level of the telco, how exactly can we reduce some of the risks that the government has identified in those networks. Okay, then for now, then what kind of advice would you have for people who hear about these stories and they think, I just want to make sure like nobody's going to steal my information? <laughs> So the, the, the easiest things that individuals can do on a regular basis is first and foremost, and most importantly, and I can't underscore this enough, just update your devices. I have a lot of devices. It drives me nuts. It's annoying. <laughs> it is the most valuable thing that you can ever do. Followed by when you have an option on your sensitive account, so you can think of email that you have attached to your banking system or to your Amazon or CRA or things like that. You want to see if you can enable something that's called two-factor authentication. Um, so that'll often involve you downloading an app onto your phone. And then whenever you insert your password and your login to, say, your bank, you'll also have to generate um, a short code. And the purpose of that is, let's say someone does manage to steal your, your login and password, which is a guarantee at some point in their lives, then th that adversary also has to have some other capability. And it isn't perfect. It doesn't solve all the, the fishing that can go on in the world, but it does do a great deal to cut down on it. And it's an easy way to, right. uh, to get a little bit safer. And I know that two-factor authentication has been heavily pushed. And I know I've switched a whole bunch of my stuff to that. But is that message getting through to people or are enough of us using it? Probably not enough of us, to be honest. Um, it, it is a slow process. Um, I know that, uh, you know, it's not a well-used service by the broader population, but Twitter, as an example, came up with statistics saying that under 10% of its users or so were actually using it. That's often identified as a relatively technologically savvy audience. So is it perfect? It isn't. Is it something that's easy to do, though? 
it is. And it's also something that, you know, if you have questions, you can usually go to one of the vendors. So you can go to Apple or Microsoft or someone like that. And they usually have some helpful uh, guidance for individuals. All right. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about it today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So informative. Christopher Parsons is a senior researcher at the University of Toronto Citizen Lab, talking about the ways in which we are vulnerable to people getting our information, even foreign intelligence agencies spying on us because of our cell phones. So good advice from Christopher there on the steps that you can take.